Welcome to the Truth Matters podcast, a guide to misinformation. I'm Della Kilroy, a journalist with RT, and I'm your host. I'm Shane Creevy, the head of editorial at Kinzen, and I'm your host too. This is a four-part podcast series exploring how misinformation spreads in an era of mass communication and how to protect yourself against it. And this is the third episode in the series. So if you want to hear more about how misinformation spreads and how to talk to friends who believe in conspiracy theories, you can listen back to the first two episodes. But today we're going to be looking at the challenges in preventing the spread of misinformation. Yeah, and the the first person we spoke to was our friend and former Storyful colleague, the Kerry native and CNN journalist, Donny O'Sullivan. Donny's been reporting on this for years. So we're going to hear from him in a moment, but first we wanted to play a clip of him in action. So your mom watches CNN? Yes. So if your mom watches CNN, she's probably seen people like me on TV say Pizzagate's a conspiracy theory. Mm. You don't believe it's a conspiracy theory? No, it's definitely not. Pizza is a code word for child pornography. Cheese pizza, child pornography. They believe that. They believe Hillary Clinton is a pedophile. They believe almost every high Democrat is a pedophile. Podesta, all of them, it's crazy. What's going on with Tom Hanks? (laughs) So you guys just want me to explain everything today, huh? Dude, it's all suspicion. Doni in action there at a Q Anon event in the US. Now, when we spoke to Doni, we talked about his role as a journalist and what he deals with when there is hostility towards the press at times. We first talked to him about how conspiracy theories spread from online rumors to real world events. And he gave us some examples. Yeah, I mean, I think we obviously all saw the most obvious and you know, most scary example of that on on January 6th, when there was the riot at the Capitol, the insurrection, it was quite literally the physical manifestation of the online mob. It was so many people who were repeating all of the online conspiracy theories that they had been fed for months uh, since election day, since even before the election. Um, I had been traveling around the US going to Trump rallies, going to, um, I guess, anti-election protests or protests that were claiming the election uh, was in some way a fraud. And, you know, anytime I spoke to people there, it was it was incredible because I would say, well, what proof do you have that the election was stolen? Almost all the time they would be they would say, well, I see these videos, I see these posts. And you say, what video? And then they'd describe the video and might be, you know, there was one video that was going around that was purporting to show ballots for Trump being burned on election week. And it was totally false. Uh, the, the the place where the ballots were actually from, they were sample ballots. Exp- you know, the authorities explained these were not real ballots. And people use these videos, these false misleading posts as the basis and foundation for their belief that the election was stolen or whatever political belief they want to have, and then use that as the basis and justification for going to protest or going to riot or going to stage an insurrection. And I think a lot of times people say, oh, well, what's the harm of some misinformation? What's the harm of some false Facebook posts? Well, it's pretty clear to see now. People use that as the building blocks uh, for a sort of violent, anti-democratic ideology. In covering conspiracy theories and covering the QAnon movement in particular, what kind of hostility do you experience as a journalist on the ground? 
Yeah, I mean, it goes from the level of the guy who was sending mail bombs to CNN's offices a few years ago, who was a Trump supporter, to people sometimes who I meet on the ground at rallies and different events who really don't like CNN, who join in on the CNN sucks chant, but will still also uh, talk to me. And sometimes they almost view this as as a sort of sport, that it's they, they don't uh, view these sort of chants and this sort of rhetoric as a as an attack on the free press as, as the way that maybe other folks would. But, you know, we've been fortunate so far that uh, we haven't sort of got into major difficulty. There's definitely been a few moments where it's been tense. Uh, but, you know, going to any event like that, um, we're lucky CNN provides uh, security. But at the fl- on the flip side of that, it's unfortunate that that is a reality now for us if we want to go cover certain events uh, we'll have security from your experience you're on the ground meeting a lot of these people uh, these are people that you know are online spreading these things but you're actually then meeting them face to face and talking to them can you talk to me a little bit about how these conspiracies are really hurting families across America you know I've spent a lot of time particularly since the capital talking to people who have either tried to get out of QAnon and conspiracies like that, or to, to family members of people who have loved ones who believe in a lot of this stuff. And I was recently in the south of the country and speaking to a woman who's in college. She's an undergrad. Um, and both her parents are totally hooked on QAnon and they're stockpiling weapons and frozen food and dried frozen food and all that stuff i said to her i was like are you afraid that your parents are throwing away their life savings and she said not just their life savings my college tuition and you know she said that that growing up her parents are always folks that that sort of would have toyed with conspiracy theories but now what we have through social media and failure of of the moderation from these platforms is these huge communities now gathering and building online. I just think that everything has has been taken up a few notches, you know? Google, Twitter, and Facebook bosses have been grilled by the US Congress over the spreading of misinformation online. For some, they believe that the storming of the US Capitol was, was like the tipping point for greater regulation. What do you think is needed now to try and combat the spread of conspiracy theories that can lead to the, the types of violence that you witnessed? I mean, like, I, I don't think there's one solution that's going to fix this problem. Clearly, the horse has bolted in many ways and what we saw happening in Dublin in the past few months and around Ireland. And, you know, it's, it's sort of scary, actually, to, to, to see what's happening at home in Ireland because, you know, there was sort of a sense in Ireland to say, ah, that's crazy stuff that's going on over in America. We'd never believe that sort of stuff here. You can now sort of see that, you know, there's accounts, there's people, there's personalities online in Ireland who are starting to spread this stuff and people are buying into it. I don't frankly think that regulations or tweaking of algorithms is going to solve the whole problem. I think this is a sort of problem. I think it's going to be one of the defining challenges of the 21st century. I think we're really only at the start of the conversation of how do you fix this? Because there's so many layers to it. There's the algorithms, there's the tech companies, there's, but there's also education and biases and us all want, believing what we want to believe and then having 
platforms that only shows us the type of content we want to believe. So I don't know. I don't have the answers. That's why I'm probably not a, a lawmaker or one of these tech execs. Uh, but clearly there are things that like the companies could do overnight. And, you know, we see it all the time. Like, I don't know how many times you'll see it every week now in, in Ireland, even reporters at home are writing stories about the sort of muck that's going around, whether it's about vaccines or lockdowns or whatever. And they say, oh, yeah, you're right. That breaks our rules. But they're missing stuff every single day. CNN journalist Donny O'Sullivan there. Some interesting points in what has been missed by social media platforms and the resulting real life harm. And we will hear from Twitter and Facebook on some of these issues in our next episode. But back to efforts in trying to disrupt disinformation campaigns. Journalists are often at the forefront of researching exactly that. And so we sat down with two more Irish journalists to get more insights into what they see every day. That's right. We spoke to a few editors and fact checkers about their roles. Christine Bohan is deputy editor of the journal.ie and leads their fact checking efforts. And Joe Galvin is a journalist and editor who specializes in social media verification and online disinformation. And he was formerly the managing editor of Storyful. Now we spoke to them together about the challenges in debunking false information and their role as journalists in the verification and fact checking process. Christine first reminded us what changes they've seen in Ireland over the past year in terms of misinformation spreading since the start of the pandemic? When we were, we started fact checking in 2016. And when we started off, we were fact checking quite wonky, almost academic things. You know, it was like a politician would say that Ireland had a low level of homelessness. And so we would check that kind of thing or very much kind of correcting the records. And then when coronavirus happened, it just completely changed everything. And suddenly Ireland was just like every other country. We just started seeing so much more misinformation and conspiracy theories. And I always think of it as being kind of two different waves. And the first wave was just misinformation that was based around anxiety, kind of January, February, March of last year, when suddenly WhatsApp messages in particular started being shared a huge amount, saying things like, oh, the army are coming out onto the streets. You know, there's cases in the hospitals and they're not telling you. And it was all these things where people were sharing them with family and friends. And I think trying to be deliberate, trying to be helpful, they weren't trying to spread misinformation, but it wasn't accurate. If that was all based on anxiety, I think the second wave was based around distrust in institutions. And that's what we've been seeing for the past year. And that's where we're seeing conspiracy theories, because it's like people don't trust the government or the WHO or authorities. And we're seeing this being shared in conspiracy theories around, around Neffet or around George Soros or around 5G was a big thing at one stage. Suddenly it is just like Ireland is like every other country. And that's quite worrying. I think as well, what's something that has happened over the last 12 months is that we've seen scale, you know, come in in a big way, by which I mean, previously you might have a limited kind of subset of people who were interested in particular points of view or disinformation or consuming disinformation. But over the past 12 months, we've seen groups on Facebook and other platforms, Telegram and so on, kind of sprout up and generate huge interactions in, in a period of you know a few short months. And look, it's it's on mainstream social media at the moment, but again, we're seeing that migration to the to more closed platforms like Telegram and those groups on Telegram have exploded in size as well in the last few months, you know, while I've been watching. I think that's such a big question about because these groups have been able to kind of ferment or kind of jump onto the questions that people have about COVID and about vaccines in particular, 
But now they've got a very energized, very active group of users, particularly on Facebook. So I think one of the big questions is what are they going to turn their attention to once COVID becomes less of an issue? Because these groups aren't just going to go away and it's not like they're going to stop caring. So I wonder, are we going to see these groups um, being involved in more political issues? Are we going to see candidates run for the next general election in four years time, you know, who, who are kind of activists who have sprung from these kind of groups? Christine, I was wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about what does the daily life of a fact checker actually look like? And maybe you could give us an example. So when we're looking for things to fact check, we're looking for two things. We're looking for a post that's being shared widely and we're looking for something that has the potential to do harm. We don't want to just find something on Twitter that one person has said and they have 10 followers and no one has engaged with it. If somebody, for example, happened to say, if you inject bleach into your arm, that could be a cure or a treatment or prevention for COVID-19. That is kind of prime material for a fact checker. So I suppose the typical day for us is we have one person who's assigned every day to just do a kind of a trawl through everything that's out there in the kind of miasma of the internet and find what are the things we need to be triaging and prioritizing to fact check. I like to think we'd have this like army of fact checkers and I think sometimes people think we do and we don't and that's been one of the hardest things this year because the amount of misinformation has been so big that we haven't been able to fact check as much as we would want to. I think Christine actually kind of something and it's something I think about myself which is I do wonder sometimes is there a danger we'll start to devote ourselves too much to the policing the identification of disinformation I suppose instead of focusing on the broader issues that maybe allow it to fester or on the groups that are exploiting it and, and those bigger themes and I've definitely been guilty of doing this myself you know picking out a piece of disinfo online debunking it and kind of but as Christine was alluding to there, it's a bit of a whack-a-mole kind of uh, element. Joe, specifically looking at a video in particular, how do you find videos that, that need verification overlooking when it comes to spreading misinformation online? We kind of codified an approach at Storyful that looked at three specific elements of any piece of audiovisual content. We looked at the provenance of it or the source we looked at, you know, can we establish the date on which the piece of content was taken, whether it was a still image, video, in some cases, maybe audio, and can we establish the location in, in which it was taken? And usually if we could match those three things up, we can say with an extremely high degree of confidence that this is an authentic piece of footage from, let's say, a war zone in Syria. It's, I suppose the gold standard, as you say, is, is using open source techniques and verification and fact checking to do something that otherwise would not be possible. And a, a lot of the tools and tricks they use can be done by anyone sitting in front of their laptop anywhere in the world. And that's the beauty of it. I suppose the flip side of that is that those who want to spread disinformation or misinformation or share fake videos, they can be doing it from any room in the world, too. So, you know, it's easy to spread disinformation, but fortunately, everyone has at their fingertips the ability to fact check a piece of information that they see online, you know, to ask the question, okay, before I hit share here, do I know the source of this, this particular claim or this particular video? Do I know where it was shot? Do I know the date in which, you know, get them to ask those questions before they share? Yeah, because one of the biggest things we've noticed over the past year is that we're not seeing the big black and white claims that are clearly definitively false. You know, we're not seeing people coming out saying um, the Pope has endorsed Donald Trump for president, which is one of the big kind of stories you think of when you think of false news which is one that was shared a lot in America but in Ireland a lot of the things that we see are things that actually sound like they could be true 
so it does take a little bit of work for someone to figure out wait is this or is this not because a lot of times they just they have the ring of truth to them and I can understand why people would share them and you know it, it kind of it backs up people's worldview or they've heard something in the ether that maybe would tally with this and would uh, would, would back it up so I think we can't be too critical of people who are sharing false stories because a lot of the times like it's very easy it could be any of us it's not like it's shared by people who don't know better I think it's like it is to do with the the literacy skill the digital literacy skill literacy skills um that people have or don't have and as well like there's there's a design to these things I think which has been perfected now over a number of years and the memes that are successful or the misinformation that's most successful is the one that generates an immediate emotional reaction in the the person seeing it and when a person has that reaction you know this feels true and you know it makes me angry and it kind of fits in with my worldview you kind of you're almost hitting share before you've thought about it that level of sophistication around those kinds of memes has grown I think significantly in the last few years so uh Christine and, and Joe like what, what are the biggest challenges facing the kind of research that you guys do every day I think one of the biggest challenges is that more and more we're seeing that state actors are open to engaging in the kind of online information wars much more than they ever have been before. Like when we started at Storyful 10 years ago, this stuff was in its infancy. We now have for-profit companies, you know, advertising their services and saying, look, we can run manipulation campaigns for you. We can do this. So it's becoming an industry that's being run by states. It's being run by for-profit companies. And it's becoming unmanageable really for, for us to handle it. There needs to be a better kind of system of regulating this and tackling this and dealing with this at a you know global level, whether it's the United Nations, who knows who can take control of this, but it needs to be dealt with at that level too. I think the biggest challenge is what this means for Irish society, because I think now we've shown that we've got a huge number of people in this country who are who have become an audience for misinformation and so what do we do with that like what does that look like is it that these people now don't we'll have a number of people in the country who just won't trust political parties or won't trust you know the HSC or won't trust organizations like Neffet and then what do they do are they just like disaffected and you know will they vote for fringe political parties will they run as fringe political candidates or you know what does Irish society look like I think that's the single biggest challenge it's like that this is going to impact what the country looks like um, because we've seen the path that it's taken in the US and in the UK and in other countries around Europe. And I think we've seen how we don't want Ireland to go. You know, we don't want to end up with, say, a partisan media or. But I think that there's a lot more that can be done by government and by the platforms in particular. I think we have to keep talking about like what the platforms can be doing to fix this, because that's probably the biggest challenge. What are the platforms going to do that's actually going to help fix this? It's a problem that they've created. I think as well, you know, there can be a tendency to view disinformation, I suppose, kind of follow on what Christine is saying there. We can view disinformation in isolation sometimes as opposed to kind of a symptom of broader societal problems. And we frame our responses in that way, whereas we probably could do a better job both as journalists and, and government agencies, whatever, to focus on the root causes of it and Things like bigotry and discrimination and socioeconomic injustice, media literacy, we've mentioned education. I mean, so social media has supercharged disinformation, but the underlying causes of it and the themes that allow it to fester, 
they need to be dealt with too. And I, I think we could probably beat away at the platforms and technology for a long time and it's never going to be just right. But if we do approach those fundamental root causes, you know, societal issues that do allow disinformation to grow and fester and, and do need to be tackled too. So clearly from Christine and Joe's perspective, platforms need to be acting more to stop the spread of disinformation. And a lot of that will be about taking down posts. But some people, like our next interviewee, Gillian C. York, are really worried about platforms overreaching here and the importance of free expression. Gillian is the author of the book Silicon Values and the Director for International Freedom of Expression at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. We first asked her, as a free speech activist, where do we draw the line between censorship and moderation? When should a platform go and take something down? When is it justified? So, I mean, I come from a free speech perspective. I'm not an absolutist, but I think that ultimately the rule should be to only take things down when necessary. And the basis for that, in my opinion, should be the existing international human rights frameworks that we already have, which do allow for some limitations, but these have tests that go with them uh, to weigh the harms of, of different types of information and speech. Would that include things like, for, for people who don't know, uh, incitement to hatred and violence, toxic speech, abusive speech, but would it also include conspiracy theories and disinformation? Yeah, so it wouldn't. Um, so the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which is, you know, goes with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and is kind of the basis for the way that we view these issues internationally, um, that allows for some exceptions, um, things like uh, public order and, of course, incitement would fall under that. But disinformation is a trickier subject um, that you know is is looked at kind of differently when you're when you're putting it in this framework. I think disinformation you know can be viewed outside of the free speech um, kind of rubric. We can look at this as a problem that can be solved through measures other than takedowns. And so when we look at things like advertising, we know I mean there's not a whole lot that we know about the algorithms because there's not a lot of transparency there. And so that's one of the solutions that we can apply to this problem rather than say okay let's just have um, people working for corporations decide what is and isn't disinformation and take down that speech. We can do things like make sure that we know what the inputs to the algorithm are or look at issues with the business model and the way that advertising um, is promoted to people. It's fair to say you've done a great job of reminding people, particularly in the West, about the dangers of over-moderation. So can you just talk a little bit about that, maybe any examples of platform overreach, let's say? Sure. So I think one of the clearest examples, and this is something that's really escalating at the moment, is cases where um, platforms are happy to take things down at the request of less democratic governments. Um, one of the one of the examples that's in the news a lot lately is Turkey, because they've applied a new Internet law that would require platforms to take down certain types of illegal speech within a certain time frame, which is very similar to the existing law in Germany, um, except Germany is a more democratic nation where the rules are more or less in line with international human rights frameworks. Um, but with Turkey, you know, some of the stuff that gets taken down is criticism of the current government. And again, that's done within a legal framework. But the question then is, should these platforms be responding to that? Um, and then on the other side of things, platforms make some of their own decisions that I find really troubling, um, often, you know, in attempts to use automation to remove things like hate speech or terrorism, they'll take down things that are uh, that include counter speech against these these ideas, um, as well as things like documentation of um, war crimes in places like Syria. From what you know, how does content moderation actually work in practice? 
So there's kind of three inputs for content moderation, three starting points. The first one is what we're most familiar with when you see something you don't like on a platform and you report it, and it goes to an, either a person or an algorithm. Um, I can get more into that, but somebody in the company is deciding whether or not this piece of content violates the rules. And so that's kind of the most obvious one. Then there's also proactive automation that's being used in some of these circumstances, such as when it comes to terrorism, child sexual abuse imagery, and some of the more heinous things that would come up on these platforms. And then of course, the third one is like the example I gave earlier, where it's a government demanding that something be removed, either you know through law enforcement means or through a court order. Um, and so all of those different things kind of lead into a very complicated flowchart, but ultimately you have some form of either human moderation, automated moderation, or a combination of both. When it comes to, to this type of content moderation, what would you like to see social media companies do differently when it, when it comes to content moderation and monitoring misinformation or, or fake news online? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's the first thing It's transparency. We should know more about who the moderators are, you know, how many people are speaking certain languages, because one of the things that we've seen over the years is that platforms are very inconsistent with how they deal with different countries and, and language sets around the world. So there's that sort of thing, but there's also things like knowing their error rates um, against different topics. We know, for example, that some things are easier to moderate than others, like things that are classifiable, uh, binary, are easier to deal with than speech, which is complex and requires more um, kind of human nuance and analysis. So yeah, transparency around the numbers, transparency to the users, here's what rule you violated, and here's how you can rectify the situation. And then of course, we'd like to see more appeals. Um, the, you know, the right to remedy, the right to due process. But I think that overall, there's also just other, I think that platforms can look toward other solutions. And actually, you know, fact checking is one of those areas where I think that the, the you know, there's issues with it, but I think fact checking is on the right path toward what we want to see rather than a process that's either leave up or take down. Um, but there's a lot that I, that I want to see, you know, I think one is absolutely um, media literacy, but also kind of teaching in a different way that that helps kids understand the complexity of the world. I think, you know, I wrote a piece recently about how a lot of the disinformation that entered my life as a young person entered through my public school education. Um, and so when we're teaching kids, you know, these history facts that we're not really, we're not really always sure are facts. Um, I think that that, or, you know, or it comes from a nationalist perspective. I think that's one of the things that we really need to address. Um, but also things like mindfulness and, and sort of a more critical thought approach to um, education from the beginning. And then I also think, you know, that right now, a lot of the, a lot of the things that we're seeing um, are due to this sort of, this lack of, a, a growing lack of respect for rights around the world. Um, you know, not, I'm not talking about necessarily speech here, but I think that there are a lot of other things. We're seeing an invasion of privacy. We're seeing, um, you know, growing discrimination in a lot of countries and growing racism. Um, and so we've got to deal with those issues from the very beginning. Um, we can't just, you know, apply a technical techno solutionist approach to um, to speech. Speech is the symptom. Gillian C. York there telling us that solutions come from society, not just moderation. So what we've heard is that misinformation comes from and for a variety of reasons and solutions need to be widespread. So coming up in the final episode, we'll be examining more of these suggested solutions in solving issues surrounding misinformation in the digital age. One person you'll hear from is Olaf Steenfat, the head of the Media Ownership Monitor Project and the Journalism Trust Initiative at the Press Freedom Watchdog Reporters Without Borders. Here's a clip of him from our next episode. If we cannot even agree on facts, how can we address all those other issues? 
um, in the first place. So I think disinformation is kind of a, a, a prerequisite to fix uh, in order to then address everything else that we are struggling with. We'll also hear from more experts working with civil society groups and organizations utilizing technology to combat the harm caused by misinformation. And of course, we'll also be hearing from social media companies about their role in the fight against the spread of misinformation. That's all coming up in the final episode in the Truth Matters podcast series. Thanks for listening. And if you found some of this interesting, please do share.